everybody welcome to another episode of the mainline podcast this podcast along with all of our other non-news episodes are part of northern provisions llc check out the lethal minds journal a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture take a look at the journal's bulletin from the borderlands a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple and talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethal minds journal dot substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more uh, please consider supporting us on patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate so today for this episode i'm bringing sino talk on again of course he's our indo-pacific desk chief for the lethal minds journal and we're basically going to be doing a response video so recently uh, ben Shapiro, he's like this conservative political commentator. Sometimes he like tries to jump into geopolitics and, and, and all that stuff. So he did a video um, basically explaining that in his opinion, China is, is moving towards an inevitable collapse, right? And he gave five main reasons for that, right? And explained each reason. It's like, I don't know, eight, eight to ten minute video, something like that. So basically, I brought Sinotalk on to do a response to that. We're going through all five points and their explanations and knocking them out one by one to see if they're accurate, if they're complete BS, or if they're just lacking some context in them. So that's pretty much what we're doing today. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode and we'll head into it. Okay, I'm here with Sinotalk, and today uh, this is going to be sort of a response podcast. So I came across this video probably about a week ago from Ben Shapiro, and uh, the title is Despite What You're Told, China Is Dying. And you guys could watch this if you want. It's like an eight-minute long video. It's really not that long. And basically, Ben Shapiro is going over five main reasons why uh, China is dying right so it's on the path to collapse basically um and yeah i brought sino talk on here and we're well he is going to tell me whether or not he agrees with the video and the and the reasons and why so uh how's it going man going good dude just um prepare for this podcast <laughs> yeah i'm sure all right. Uh, well, first off, I mean, let's let's start with the title. China is dying. Just do you agree or disagree? I disagree. I mean, it's one of those things in which it's not spec- uh, sensationalist. It gets people to click on it so they can watch the eight, the eight minute video that he has. Yeah, well, I guess it worked on me. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things in which whenever you see people like, oh, China's not, uh, China is dying, or like the, uh, or like um, the PLA is gonna invade Taiwan by then because a general uh, from Stratcom or Enter whatever command he's from said so. I mean, it's the socialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's. Uh, I guess let's just jump right into it. First reason. China has major issues when it comes to demographics. His reasoning, uh, China, according to him, has the world's fastest aging society right now. The vast majority of its population is, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, over age 30. Uh, no demographic base. It, they don't have a demographic base to pay the bills, right? If you have a majority of your population is um, over 30, right, that means you probably have a shortage of workers in theory, right? Which means you don't got people to pay uh, social welfare benefits and, you know, government budget, all that sort of stuff. Uh, another reason birth rates are less than uh, 1.2 per woman. I believe replacement rate is 2.1. That's the population replacement rate. And then his last reason is the one China policy. Basically, he says that the one of China policy led to sex selective abortions, right? So you had uh, a huge um, disparity between the amount of males you had as opposed to females. And then also, according to him, the one China policy prevented 400 million births when it was in effect. So what do you have to say about that? I think 
Well, first off, I'll go ahead and touch upon the one China policy because that's where I actually have the most issue with this. Um, he glosses over the fact that the one child policy is no longer in effect. They've, the Chinese government instituted a two, two child policy and now a three child policy and now some provinces uh, will allow you to have as many children as you want because the Chinese understand this is a significant issue. And that depends on the province? Yeah, it depends on the province. Like Sichuan, okay. uh, Huaybi, and I believe Anhui were the first ones to actually issue out um, issue out those directives. Um, those include allowing uh, first term uh, newly married couples to have thirty days off, uh, thirty a month off of work, essentially, so they can go and have kids or make babies. Um, and also um, increase the the increase the incentives for child for free uh, child care, and as well as letting finally letting the single mothers um, register their children um, for the uh, under the haiku system. Because before, if you were sing if you were a Son or a daughter of a single mom, you weren't registered. You you couldn't register on. And that was in Sichuan. But another issue is the fact that he doesn't explain why the uh, birth rate hasn't. It he he didn't explain like why the birth rate decline to this point, but then also like why there's no like big gap, big jump. If we were to have uh, cited some of the incentives and uh, policy changes I digested. Yeah, if the uh, policy's gone, why why are the birth rates still declining? Because it's cultural. Um, people, uh, newly, uh, newly married couples, young couples would rather focus on their career. They would rather focus on obtaining the dream, if you will, a Chinese dream, as much of it that is realistically left at this point, than to uh, raise a family. Now, granted, this isn't always the case. I mean, some of those some of these people will inevitably um, have a kid or two before uh, within the next ten or so years. But, but the um, but the effect of this, but the effect of them waiting to decrease the uh, significant decrease of the population. In fact, you know, a lot of people say that there is a um, that there that we do see a slight increase. That is more along the lines of Chinese propaganda, and which they'll say like or or. We're at the provincial level. They'll say like, oh, we have a slight increase in, in uh, Guang, uh, uh, Guizhou province or in, or in uh, uh, Yan'an province. And while to people who either don't know any better or, you know, don't really care if it's their narrative, they, they tote this as saying like, oh, this is, this shows you, this, this shows the, um, it's not really a thing or it's like if they're fixing it. Realistically, those provinces don't matter, even if it is true, which more likely not. They probably seen a site and they probably seen a decrease as well. Because one, they're mostly rural areas. They're not really urbanized, like the areas where we see the most uh we've seen the the most significant decreases in in uh birth rates. But then also, some of these provinces are home to minorities or ethnic minorities who are incentivized to have more kids because they are minorities. Well, selective minorities, to say, select minorities. And even so, these are in the rural areas. So even if they could migrate, or if, even if they 
wanted to migrate, there is inherent difficulty in them trying to do so because of the haiku system, huku system. Um, regarding the one-child one policy, you know, he, he says that it, it, Ben Shapiro said it's to blame. I don't, I kind of agree with him. It sets the policy, it, the policy set, set it up, but realistically, you have to look at the reason why they would select, why they would choose to have a male over a female if they have a choice for one child. And the reason why is because in Chinese culture, traditional Chinese culture, and Confucian, and Confucian, that is heavily influenced by Confucianism, you need to have a male to procreate the line or to make sure your line survives. So that's the reason why if they find out there's a, they have a female, they self-abort or they go get abortions or they give it up for adoption, which is another was another option that Ben Shapiro uh, conveniently left out conveniently left out up until now. I mean it's, it's one of those things in which like he, he has a valid point once you but once you look into the nitty-gritty of it, you kind of see like eh, it kind of fits his own narrative. Um, because people are, because companies are finally understanding that maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't put all, uh, all of our eggs into China, or we maybe we shouldn't, uh, maybe we should move uh, operations outside of China, in which they are. They're going to Mexico, Vietnam, the Philippines, India, and in which those, uh, in which those um, countries actually provide a better educated workforce at cheaper production rates. Uh, cheaper, uh, cheaper costs. So uh, compared to China, so they're not only getting a better cost in terms of labor, but they're also getting, but they're also able to use, uh, but they're also able to increase their value-added labor uh, or operations in those countries. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot, uh, a lot less political issues that you have to potentially worry about as well. Exactly. I mean, I mean, certain certain uh, countries like India, maybe in uh, Mexico, or yes, in Mexico, you have to worry about corruption and then ethnic strife and um, cultural violence. But uh, compare that to China. I mean, like, I'm pretty certain some business executives would rather just go build their factories in Monterey and Sinaloa and than uh, continue operations in Shanghai. What do you think about uh, their supposed shortage of sophisticated microchips? Excuse me. Um, this is this true. Um, matter of fact, people, there's been news reports or news articles uh, that came out detailing how Chinese people are now uh, smuggling, attempting to smuggle chips into back into China. Uh, the the advantage the those sophisticated microchips that are now embargoed by the United States and and its allies, Japan, Taiwan, and the Netherlands, and it caused havoc within the Chinese micro uh, microprocessor industry, but also in the associated in industries that use or rely upon them. And while some companies have try to cash in on this situation. I think um, TSTM or TSMC actually produced a, it's them or NVIDIA that produced a downgraded version of their, mo of their of one of the sophisticated microchips specifically for the Chinese market. I doubt they'll be able to deploy it or to deploy it um, in the United States and Taiwan and other countries would say you can't do that. They'll probably, that, probably put extra controls on that product as well. Um, I know I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit, um, but, the short, but the, uh, there is a gap between China and the United States and the oil in the West in general in terms of chip sophistication and how powerful they are. China, he kind of got it right when he cited 
the person where he said like there's uh see that one analyst when he said like there's a 10-year gap i would say it's more like a 12-year gap because of the fact that china they will because china can't produce them because china doesn't really have the necessary infrastructure as well as experience but more importantly they don't really have the they don't have in a weird way they don't have an innovative they don't really have the innovative potential to do so. And yeah, which is I, which is what the second uh, point points to. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So regarding IP theft, I mean, for China, it wasn't always supposed to be long-term model, but they just found it so convenient to do so. They've, for them, uh, they kind of view it as as their way of copying what Japan did in the late 18, uh, late 1800s when they opened up. They, uh, Japan, whenever they opened up during the Meiji rest, uh, Restoration, they've essentially copied, went out and copied the best model of every single Western nation there was. Whether it be Fran the French uh, the French slash German uh, legal systems, the British Navy in terms of how they deploy their ships, the United States in terms of how they utilize military power, well, the British and the British, uh, uh, the Americans and um, and Germans as well, uh, in terms of how they utilize their armies or land forces, and also the industry, uh, how and the and how the and how England industrialized, and so now they're copying that model that Japan that Japan did in the late 1800s, and and instead of copying you know full on uh, instead of copying you know the industries outright so that they can have their own homegrown industries and and companies, they would rather just copy the um, IPs or products in general or products themselves. Maybe put a new spin on it. The maybe put a new spin on it, like uh, the HQ9 Samsung surface air missile system, like they did, uh, which is essentially a Chinese ver an improved Chinese version of the SA20 Bravo variant, I believe, and. And while this model does leave them lagging behind in the West, you kind of see them, you kind of see their ability to innovate depending upon if they see if, if they see any incentive, if they're incentivized to do so. Like uh, the 5G and their electric vehicle industries are one of the best, if not the best, uh, industries in the world. Um, they produce a supply chain, well, regarding their uh, electronic vehicle industry. They build an entire uh, supply chain to include uh, raw supplies, raw materials, um, to factories that produce uh, the actual vehicles themselves and the associated parts that go into them, all the way up to the necessary supply of logistical chain to get those uh not only to get the vehicles to the dealerships but to get the um but get the raw materials to the factories as well and it's paying dividends you're seeing you're seeing uh car companies western car companies like gm ford um tesla being almost pushed out of china now by homegrown brands this is the um, bd and uh, IP. Not only that, but those those same but those same companies are now able to export into China, into Europe, or increasing their uh, uh, export focus in Europe. And it's paying dividends for them, and it's paying dividends for them. Regarding five G, they ran into some some difficulty because of the U.S. sanctions and export controls, but realistically. Um, they're still able to produce those um, the 5G equipment because 
by that time, by the time the United States and its allies in place, um, in place, um, sanctions, export controls on that associated hardware, you, China kind of didn't need it. They, they, they got to where they're, they were self-sufficient. Got it. Okay. So if we had to give him a grade on innovation, what does he get? I would say B. Okay. I'm doing B. Okay. Moving on to the third point, debt. So uh, according to him, China's GDP growth has been mostly funded by debt. Their debt to GDP ratio is at least 159%, which is 60% higher than the global rate. Uh, also, corporate, household, and government debt is 300% of GDP and also makes up about 15% of all global debt. Uh, state ownership of banks hinders the ability of banks to decide uh, based on profitability, profitability, excuse me. And uh, also they have the issue of ghost cities. Uh, apparently they have up to 65 million empty housing units and that contributes to a looming real estate catastrophe. And lastly, the economy is too big and complex to fix these issues. So what do we think about that? This is where he has the most issues. Okay. Um, okay, so for that, he is right. That GDP growth was mostly funded by debt, and it was not mo. And it was specific upon what debt it was. It was specifically funded by infrastructure projects. You know, this like the ghost cities and the road to literally nowhere, and all these grandiose projects that people mull over at, like the um, like the um, like the like it's immense high speed rail system, like China's high speed rail system. Um, but I, he is right there, but he could have expanded upon it more to include those. But um, regarding debt to GDP, at least 159 to 160 higher than global rate, that's him citing state numbers. And so it's likely higher. And it's the reason why is because people, you know, they want, um, because they have to take on debt. Not only that, but, you know, at the provincial level, they, it, at least 50%, if not more, um, debt, like they're in, like they're, they're like a, a 50 to if not more indebted to in debt, and that's before COVID. So it's more likely rose significantly because of the fact that um, they're in the entirety of zero COVID, China's COVID policy, government COVID policy. The Chinese government, the central Chinese government said, hey, hey, uh, Sichuan province, hey, um, uh, Guadong, Hey Guangzhou, hey uh, Inner Mongolia, you're gonna do all these implementation uh, measures to include paying people to monitor people to um, to uh, to dress up in Tyrex suits and space stuff down on a daily basis, um, and test these people on a daily basis. But it's not gonna. But we're not gonna help you financially. You're gonna have to do this on your own. And so that's the reason why you've seen why we why we likely have seen a massive increase in debt, and that will also explains why a lot of these provinces and municipalities and cities actually began to borrow money against next year's uh, budget just to pay just to cover down the monthly expenses of those policies of implementing those policies. And so not only that, but then you also have to take into consideration the uh, the shadow of ghost bank industry, the amount of debt that that has. Some estimates put it as high as 300% of holding as much debt, holding 300% of the debt within China. And so you have to take that into consideration too, because 
that actually fuel the the ghost debt, uh, the ghost the debt produced by the by those ghost banks actually, in a way, cause the real estate collapse. So go ghost bank. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So ghost banks are these unofficial entities that provide loans to people who, or they could be official who provide on these unofficial loans to people or companies and, and they'll be completely off the books or they'll be hidden, hidden in, in, in a way that doesn't reflect the true debt value. And so they were always a thing in China, but over time, since no one really cared to cover down the debt or you know take care of it, it's just going to increase in time because people weren't people and businesses weren't incentivized to pay it off because what's the company is going to do? The companies can't realistically go back and enforce anything. How big of a problem is this in China? Ghost banks. Uh, it's very significant, actually. Okay, I feel like that is not talked about a lot because this is actually the first time I've ever heard of this. Yeah, it's one of those things in which people tend to gloss over because it's not because one, it's it's a very oblique uh, issue that doesn't have a lot of transparency in it. But then also, you it it also bleeds into a lot of the industries that are the cause of the issue of China's economic issues or, real, or probably about 50% of them, I have to say. So that's the reason why you don't really hear about it. Not only that, but it's not really known outside of certain Chinese or out of, out of uh, certain China washer circles as well. Okay. So it sounds like in reality, the amount of debt in China is probably much higher and that's due to these ghost banks. We just don't, we don't know how much higher it could be. Yeah, we, we don't know. Um, we don't know. And what's, what, and what's worst about it is that, you know, some of those, you know, at some of those um, loans, shadow loans or ghost loans, they were actually connected to legitimate loans. And that's why you see, that's, that's actually is the nexus, another issue of the, another issue is the fact that uh, they don't know how much debt there is out there, but then also they don't know uh, some of this debt is connected to legitimate forms of debt. And we may actually be seeing the crisis that it caused, this causes right now. Very interesting. Yeah. Kind of to continue on with, with Ben's point on debt, uh, is there any indications of a looming real estate, quote-unquote, catastrophe? Uh, not a catastrophe, maybe a crisis to where people would need to, where the state would need to uh, make a decision on whether to actually violate their longstanding, quote-unquote, principle. Um uh, of like not getting involved in provincial matters or in debt matters and actually do do something about it. like maybe inject a stimulus maybe we we inject more stimulus maybe restructure the debt maybe um help those banks consolidate the debt like we did in 2008 2008 in which there's been a lot of comparisons to where China, where people are, are saying that, oh, well, China's finally meeting its, oh, it's finally having its Lehman Brothers moment. I kind of disagree because with Lehman Brothers, the United States didn't kick the can down the road. The United States, as painful as it was to um, the consumers and the economy, they took care of it because they had to. China, there's not really an incentive to do that. 
they, there's no real, they don't really have an incentive. The central government doesn't really want to do that because one, it creates presence for them to actually help out at other times and other crises, which they just don't want to do that. They don't want to do it because China could fix the issue. But again, going back to the issue of presidents, not only that, but just the fact that once they start doing this, they then, then they know then they know that the ball will keep will have to will, uh, start rolling upon other economic reforms and structural and structural changes that it has to implement, but kind of don't want to do because they're not incentivized to do that. Got it. Okay, and. Uh, last point as far as debt goes, he says their economy is too big and complex to fix these issues. What do you think about that? I don't think he's, I don't think that's correct. I think going back to my next point, it's the fact that China could fix the issues. It's just the mere fact that there's no incentive to do so. Mm -hmm. There's no incentive to do so. Even then, like, um, um, the uh, Chinese, uh, I forgot. If, I, I don't. I forgot if it was she or like a Chinese senior Chinese official said, um, you know, you shouldn't. Uh, people shouldn't whine about um, uh, getting a job or like what kind of job you have, because right now there's like a right now there's a significant unemployment crisis as well in China. Um, State government figures, state state figures say that 22 percent. Realistically, it's more than likely upwards of 50 percent of the population unemployed. And so half the population. Yeah. Some some uh, some uh, some uh, some scientists uh, and economic uh, and economists actually said uh, actually did actually said that it's. More well, likely, upwards of fifty percent, forty-six to fifty percent. And so, and so, to back back to my earlier point is the fact that they're not really incentivized. They weren't. They're not really incentivized to fix the unemployment issues because you know they they don't care. It's not the issue. Um, So realistically, even though they could, so realistically uh, for them, they could fix it, but they're not incentivized to do so because one, they don't care. That's, I guess that's the most, as long as they get their share of the pie, they don't really care. But then also the fact that once the ball starts rolling on this, they know they have to enact the structural reforms that would make the yuan more competitive on the international market, in which they kind of don't want that because the yuan is not that strong, as you can probably tell. Okay, so get what is Ben getting here? I give him, I give him a C. I give him a actually no, I'll take that back. C minus. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, he he did well. Just the fact that he could have expanded upon it, but he kind of didn't want to, or didn't need to. I guess he didn't feel the need to. Okay. Um, well, point number four, uh, military issues. So first off, economic and demographic issues that we've already spoken about play into China's military issues. Um, China relies on older and less sophisticated microchips like we were talking about before. Uh, also, the U.S. has prevented China from getting software updates, spare parts, and even advice from U.S. entities in regards to their microchips. Uh, China is behind the U.S. by a decade in chip technology. You said it's probably more like 12 years. And last, China cannot project deep water power really outside of the South China Sea. 
So what do we got for that? Um, he's right on A and B. I'll go with that. Um, so economic and demographic issues, they're going to run into um, into the issue of whether of whether or not they can continue the reforms that they're enacting on the PLA because of you know the economy because the Chinese economy may not be able to afford it. But regarding that, you may, the Chinese uh, the Communist Party may not really care for that because you've seen them slowly increase the, the defense budget, or at least publicly, um, year on year since 2010 or 2012, when their economy began to decline. So I, I think economically, you may you may see some issues to where some to where the PLA would have the People's Liberation Army may have to figure out which projects they would need to focus on to stretch to make the dollar stretch. Regarding demographics, we will more likely see that play out in the next maybe two to three years, if not five. Because that's when we're starting. That's when we will really see the decrease in male in um and uh, the overall male population. And even then, those people who uh, we will more likely see a significant decrease in those who are considered fit for military service, or at least for China's viewpoint. So, so let me ask you real quick, as far as that goes, China still has some form of conscription, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So how? how many young Chinese males actually have, have to serve in the military? You're pretty much, every Chinese male has to serve in the, China, in, in the PLA. Everyone. Like yeah, everyone. You can't really get around it. Okay. Uh, unless you're like mentally, unless you have like a serious medical or mental deficiency. Even then, they have been known to, you know, take you. <laughs> okay. And does that, I mean, do they, do they just take you pretty much as soon as you turn 18 or? No, well, what happens is that you have to register at the local office, the local military government, government's office. And then from there, you're going to get uh, your name called. So, so essentially they, that method provides and incentivization for the you know, for those Chinese males to go voluntarily enlist rather than be conscripted. So it's a catch twenty two almost. Like China doesn't have conscription, but they're going to call your number up anyway, whether it be when you turn eighteen or until you turn twenty until or until you turn twenty uh, twenty two or twenty three. They're going to call your number up anyway. The old, and in fact, the older you get, the, the more likely you are, you will be called up to serve your two years, two to three years. And so for them, so for them, it's in, so for the PLA, it provides an incentivization for them to actually just say, okay, I volunteer, because it won't be as bad as if I get conscripted. It still sucks, but it will be considerably less though if you are if you are conscripted. Interesting. So in in theory, if China has less and less, let's just say 18-year-olds year by year, I mean, this is an issue that can certainly affect them in the coming years. Yeah, it, it will. I mean, it's it will affect it will affect the PLA to where like they're gonna try they're gonna have to either um lower standards or reinforce conscription again, actual conscription instead of the catch-22 system that they have currently. Okay, got it. And I wanna, I do wanna get your opinion on Ben saying that they can't project deep water power really outside the South China Sea. I've gotten into arguments with people about this before. Like I've, I've kind of made the argument like China is not a 
a blue water navy like the U.S. is, and then somebody like snapped at me like, "What do you mean? Like, look at your aircraft carrier." <laughs> All right, I guess. <laughs> I mean, what are your thoughts? I disagree with Ben Shapiro what he with what he says. Um, China can project deep water power. I guess he forgot the various exercises that the PLA does, that the Chinese Navy does um, out there near Guam, on a near on a almost quarterly basis, I guess. Yeah, and they well, they just did one with um Russia, exactly uh, off the Aleutian Islands too. Exactly. So I mean, they so they they have the ability to project blue water power. It's just limited. Like it's not like the United States in which it can just send its ships like anywhere in the world and be like, okay, you'll be fine. Um, it can't do that with the. Uh, it can't do that with the Type Zero Zero Five and Type Zero Zero Five Six destroyers. It can't or frigates, frigate and destroyers. It can't because they don't have the experience or knowledge to do so. That's the, because that that that's really what matters within the Navy. Yeah, you can have like, um, yeah, you can have like all the necessary aircraft carriers, like the Fujian or like the Sandong or the Liaoning. You have a, you can have them, but China doesn't have the experience in operating them. They don't. They never operated a aircraft carrier before the uh, before the Liaoning. Uh, began flight off, I believe in 2017, I think, and and um, not only that, that that lack of experience and knowledge actually leads to the program, um, actually leads to a lot of uh, limitations on the program that negatively affects it, uh, affects its growth and its ability to actually improve because the Chinese military or the it, those uh, a lot of people don't realize it, but those um, ships, those um, J-16, are not loaded with ordnance whenever they land, whenever they fly. Yeah, they, they may have some small surface-to-air missiles on this on the tips, on the tip of their wings, but that's realistically nothing compared to like uh, anti-ship cruise missile or a land attack cruise missile or like. Uh, uh, precision guided ordnance. So why why did they not have those types of ordinances when they fly? Well, it's because they're still trying to figure out how to conduct operations, and then also the fact that they don't want to lose. They're very risk averse. Risk averse. They don't want to lose any of these ships, any of those, um, uh, any of those. Um, but also they don't want to cause damage to the carrier because it would cause a lot of damage to the program itself, but then also to the Chinese Navy's image. So are they afraid of uh, like a mishap with ordnance? Yeah, they're afraid that like anything that they're afraid of any mishap that could happen. Um, like let's just say if there's a crash, they can control that in a way they can like they're they're sure that the um that the aircraft carrier won't sink or be too heavily damaged but whenever you have it but whenever you're carrying like a two anti-ship cruise missiles that's designed to destroy aircraft uh, uh, a ship the risk goes up infinitely more and then also couple with that with pilots who don't really have um uh Carrier experience, uh, carrier flight ops experience, landing and taking off with those with that type of ordnance, it makes them risk averse to not conduct those operations, and you kind of see, and you kind of see it limiting their growth because if they were to just accept the uh, the risk that comes with maturing a program like the United States did and during World War Two and well, prior to World War Two and World War Two. Then they will actually have a, they may actually have like a, a good program. Who knows? Um, but they they don't. They would rather be over overly cautious and risk averse. 
you can actually, and I wrote this in the bulletin, I think in May or June, I believe, comparing the uh, flight op, uh, the uh, the exercises that the uh, Chinese did and as well as the uh, Indian Navy did with their carriers. Because the Indian because the Indian Navy actually has a lot of experience in conducting flight uh, carrier operations, and they showed it uh, in the um, in their most recent ex exercise because they were able to fly, they were able to operate aircraft from both carriers at the same time with ordnance. So that should tell you something about. I should tell you something about the uh, about the different approaches and the diff and the, the main and the significant and the significant uh, and how significant it is it experience and knowledge is to an aircraft carrier, but not only that, but to navies in general. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, as far as military issues go, what does uh what does Ben get? I'll give him a B. I'll give him a B. I mean, I kind of want to give him a B minus because, like, the whole can't project deep water power, but yeah, it's kind of like a like a half truth. Yeah, that's like he'll get a B. All right, I think that's fair. All right, well, that leads us to our last point. Uh, and according to Ben, the most important point: the fact that China is under a dictatorship. Uh, China can't easily fix the issues that we've been speaking about because the Chinese Communist Party uh, prioritizes self-preservation, right? They are the end-all, be-all. Not only that, but uh, Xi Jinping has consolidated more economic control in order to secure his grip on the country. So what do we think about that? I... He is right, is that he can't really fix the issues. The CCP can't really fix the issues. It's not it's not really because it's too big. Like the CCP is too is the all powerful. I mean, it it is, but you know, they, they try to fix some of these issues, like the demographic issues. But you can't really force women to have kids, mm -hmm. or, or you, you can't really force couples to have sex. You you can't. Um. As bizarre as that may sound to, our, to the listeners, but but um but yeah, so um it's one of those things in which they try to fix it. But one, when you have a population that doesn't really want to comply or like there's no or don't really see the need to, like the demographics. But then also when you also don't have an incentive to fix it, like the economic issues and the productivity and the lack of innovation, you kind of you kind of shoot yourself in the foot in some aspects, some of the best aspects. And and not only that, but go, but she still has to placate its own his own uh, power base. So he has to take that in regard. So he has to take that whenever he does decide what to do. Not only that, but to say that the CCP doesn't it is a problem is solely the problem itself is kind of like a true. They they tried. They just suck at it. <laughs> they just suck or like they can't get people to buy in. Okay. Well, I guess uh with all these things in mind, let's get back to the main question. Is China on the path to collapse? Mm, I would say Long term, perhaps, because a lot of these issues will have long term, um, will have long term consequences, like the demographics and then also the uh, economic issues, the debt. They these are issues that China will have to deal with not not from not five years from now, not fifteen, but more likely twenty years from now if they can't, if they are able to manage it now, even if they're able to manage it now. People who, so, so, but yeah, just, I disagree. Okay, so China is facing some serious issues, but it's not a foregone conclusion that it it will collapse. There's still time to to fix these issues. 
Yeah, there's still a ton to fix these issues. If China doesn't, which unfortunately for the Chinese people, I don't see the CCP actually doing it or she and the CCP is doing it. I think he, I think they, we will see a collapse. We'll see the Chinese, we'll see China as it, as it is, as it is now collapse in the next 10 to 15 years, maybe. Well, let's give an overall grade for Mr. Shapiro. What does he get? Mm, let's see. Let's see. Actually, now, have, you, have you been keeping track? Uh, on point number one, you gave him a C plus. I think for point number two, innovation, I believe you gave him a... I think you gave him a... B plus on debt you gave him a C minus I believe on military issues you gave him a B uh and you know what I can't remember what you gave him on dictatorship I don't think I did so I, I'll give him like a I'll give him a B so realistically he gets he gets a C plus there was some stuff that he could have researched better and could have not left out. But um, overall, he did a somewhat good job as someone who's not really a China watcher. Not only that, but limited himself within eight minutes. I mean, we did this in like an hour, an hour podcast, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so if he wasn't just so wave toppy, then I would have gave him at least a B and also included like at least some actual facts instead of old data or old old information in some in some parts. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um well yeah, any closing comments before we get out of here? Mm, no, I don't have any closing comments. Just just with people like Ben Shapiro when you see like it China dying. Just going back to my earlier point during the first part of the podcast, we see titles like that when they're sensationalists, just going with an open mind and research what they talk about afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to take more than eight minutes to explain for sure. Yeah. Okay, good stuff, man. Well, uh, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you, of course for everybody that's listening and supporting this podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed this and glad we could get this done. I'm sure you're, you're probably got dreading this, but I don't know. Maybe it wasn't as bad as you thought it would be. No, I mean, I was, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Just the mere fact that like, how badly can we, how bad do we need to like talk down, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, good stuff, man. Thanks for uh, coming on. You're welcome, my man. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, you guys, we both really hope you enjoyed that episode. I know we had a good time doing it. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You could find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyzeeducate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on the app used to listen to this podcast. That's all I have for you guys right now. We will see you soon.